Not long ago, our teenage son Joey and I were out on a run around Douglas Park, not far from our home. And at the end of our run, uh, I asked him, do you want to drop in to see your cousin Taizo, who lives not far away? So he nodded his head, and uh, we dropped in to see his cousin Taizo, who's uh, 15 years old. And uh, during the, the conversation, uh, Taizo, with a twinkle in his eye, said, uh, do you know that one of our ancestors was a prince, the son of the emperor? He had been talking to his dad, my, my brother, about this, who had done some research into it. And, and Joey said, said no. Uh, and Taizo said, well, uh, back in the 8th century, one of our ancestors was a guy named Prince Io. And he was the son of the emperor. Uh, and uh, the reason the, the royal line didn't continue through him was because he was one of, one of the, the younger sons. And uh, my nephew Taizo just beamed with, with delight. And then I chimed in and said, um, do you know that one of our ancestors spent time in prison? <laughs> and uh, Taizo, my nephew, said, no, no, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> and I explained that uh, my grandfather, his great-grandfather, had been involved with the Communist Party in Japan. He had been demonstrating got arrested, and, and then was, was thrown into to prison for a time. Uh, if we look far enough into our family tree, uh, there are things that we would discover that would make us proud, and other things that would bring us a sense of shame or embarrassment. Uh, during Advent here at 10th, we have been looking at the family tree of, of Jesus, and um, we've seen how in this ancient biblical world, your family ancestry, your family tree, uh, the, the, the record of your forebears was really important. And as we've mentioned, uh, typically in these ancient genealogies, you would only have males. You would include females if they somehow added prestige to your family tree. Matthew breaks with tradition in this very patriarchal world. And as he writes down the genealogy of Jesus, he not only includes women, but the women he includes don't bring prestige to Jesus' family line. So he doesn't mention by name uh, Jesus' forebears like uh, Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah. Instead, he names women who bring scandal to his family tree. But he does that for a purpose, which we will discover in a moment. So for example, he names the woman uh, Tamar in the family tree of Jesus, who had slept with her father-in-law to continue uh, her family line. Uh, he, he, Matthew um, names Rahab, who had worked as a prostitute, as we saw last week. And today we're going to be looking at how Matthew also includes Bathsheba in his family tree of Jesus. So listen to, to God's word from the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
and Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Let's take a moment to pray. Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would speak to us through this seemingly very ordinary document that reads a bit like a phone book. Um, And yet, as we delve into this text, we see how you choreographed the family line of your son Jesus and how uh, despite its seeming shortcomings, uh, you use this family, you use this line to further your purposes in the world and for us. And so speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 6, we read this about the family line of Jesus, that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. No, uh, we know that even though she's not named, Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. Let me give you a, a bit of the, the backstory here. In 2 Samuel 11, uh, we read that in the springtime, when kings typically went off to war, David dispatched his army to engage in, in battle. But he stayed back at the palace. And, and we read that um, one afternoon, he gets up from a nap, and he is walking along the roof of his palace, from which he can see a significant section of the city. And he notices that a beautiful woman is bathing. And uh, in the Hebrew, in the context, uh, the, the, the word can be interpreted washing. So this doesn't necessarily mean that she was you know, bathing in the nude as, 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 as we uh, typically uh, do and, and, and imagine. So this is a, a different culture. And so he is, is very captivated by her. And, and then he asks one of his servants to find out about her. The servant leaves, does his research. I'm not sure how he does it, but he comes back and he tells David, that woman is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your best and most loyal soldiers. In other words, don't do what you are thinking about doing. He's he's trying to subtly warn David. But David ignores the warning and he sends a couple of his men to go and get Bathsheba and he ends up sleeping with her. Then David discovers that Bathsheba is actually pregnant as a result of their their union. And so David moves into cover-up mode. He calls his soldier Uriah back from the battlefield, her husband. And he 
brings him to his palace and asks him, how is the war going? And he feeds him a sumptuous meal. He gets him really drunk. And then he says, uh, Uriah, you've been away from home for a long time. Go home and enjoy your wife, wink, wink. So it will seem as though her child is, is, is his. Um, but Uriah is such a noble man. Uh, even though he's had a lot to drink, he says, no, I, I, I can't do that. Um, my fellow soldiers are out risking their lives for you and, and for the nation. How can I go home and enjoy the pleasures of my, of my wife? And so he refuses to go home and instead he sleeps at the entrance of the palace. And so uh, David is in a dilemma. He says, what, what, what do I do now? And so he sends a message actually with Uriah. Uriah probably doesn't open it. It's probably in a, in a scroll for his general. And he tells his general to put Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, and then to withdraw the rest of the army so that Uriah is exposed and killed. So the general does that, uh, puts Uriah on the front lines uh, in the battle, and then has the rest of the army withdraw. Uriah is killed in the battle, and then David takes his widowed wife Bathsheba as his own wife. And the scripture tells us rather briefly that what David had done had displeased the Lord. Now, uh, we have no indication that Bathsheba is complicit, that she is responsible for, for what has happened. The responsibility is placed on, on David's shoulders. And I, I, I uh, mention that because there are certain preachers who have blamed Bathsheba for what had happened. Uh, they said she shouldn't have been bathing on her rooftop, but as I mentioned, uh, the Hebrew word uh, doesn't necessarily mean that she was bathing in, in the nude. It can indicate that she was simply washing. And by the way, the, the whole concept of, of um, taking all of our clothes off and, and uh, bathing in private is a rather recent phenomenon. It comes to us from 17th century Europe, and it wasn't until the 18th century that people actually started taking what we call showers, and they used a kind of hand pump to get the water out, so it probably wasn't especially comfortable. And it wasn't until the 19th century that people took baths in private bathtubs. And so there's a very good possibility that Bathsheba was simply washing a part of her body when David spotted her and lusted after her and then summoned her. And in Bathsheba's world, uh, the king would have had an ext extremely great amount of power. And so she would have had no recourse but to say yes to David's lustful desires and, and requests. And so she had to basically acquiesce to David's command. Um, we have a word for this in 
our modern world when someone engages in a sexual act with someone else without that other person's consent. Uh, it's, a, it's a phrase called sexual assault, and that is what is happening here. Now, there's no indication that David is physically violent, but Bathsheba isn't voluntarily participating in this act, in this sin. Uh, it is something that is perp uh, uh, perpetuated, perpetrated by, by, by David. Um, she ends up getting pregnant. She ends up losing her baby. So she experiences tragedy upon tragedy. But she goes on, Bathsheba does, to have another baby whom she names Solomon. Solomon is chosen by God to be the next king succeeding David among his, his many sons. And when we are first introduced to Bathsheba in the Bible, she seems like a passive victim. In the opening chapter of 1 Kings, however, we see that she is no longer a passive woman, but she is actively engaged in helping to ensure that her son Solomon succeeds David on the throne. It's God's will that Solomon becomes king, but Bathsheba is also playing an active role, talking to Nathan the prophet, talking to David about this. And so while Bathsheba experiences very significant losses, she's been violated, she loses a husband, she loses a son, she also becomes this strong woman of action, of wholeness. And we later see that God choreographs things so that she and her son Solomon become part of the family line of the Messiah, of the Savior of the world. And part of what this intense link in the Christmas story shows us is that God can use our pain and even our experiences of being sinned against and choreograph them into his purpose for that person and for our lives. He does this for Bathsheba. He does this for others. He can do this for us. This past September, as part of our series of messages on our vision, I interviewed, as some of you may recall if you were here, an indigenous woman named Carrie Clausen, who was part of the Ojibwe peoples. Carrie described how she was part of something called uh, the 60 scoop, where a lot of indigenous children were scooped up out of their family and then placed in the homes of adoptive families, most of whom were Caucasian. And uh, she explained in the conversation, in, in, in the interview uh, that I had with her, that she was scooped up as an infant and was adopted by a family here in Metro uh, Vancouver, a Christian family, a very loving family, to whom she was and continues to be grateful. But she um, always wondered about her biological mother and father and uh, the, um, the story of her origins. And so when she was in her early 20s, uh, she asked her adoptive mother if she could return to her hometown in Ontario 
and uh, go to her people, the people that she came from, the Ojibwe people, and to, to, to meet with her family of origin. And uh, her adoptive parents said, sure. And as they understood it, um, Carrie Clausen had been given up for adoption because her mother was a teenager and her father was also a teenager and they just weren't in a position to, 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 to raise her and so they gave her up for adoption. So, so Carrie Clausen goes to Ontario and uh, she meets her birth mother and she asks about the circumstances around her birth. And Carrie Clausen discovers uh, that... Um, she was actually conceived through an act of forced sex, an act of kind of violence. And uh, she just went into a tailspin thinking that, oh, my, my very existence is a mistake. I, I, I shouldn't be here on earth. And it was, it was just crushing for her. But she came to understand that God created her in beauty and, and, and for a purpose. And through the help of her adoptive family and others, she came to a place of healing. And now, as some of you know, uh, Carrie is speaking as a kind of ambassador for truth and reconciliation in different contexts for the Lutheran Church of Canada. And so there's been healing for her and she's being used as a light. God is taking the pain and, and, and using it as, as a gift in the lives of others, especially uh, other First Nations peoples. Uh, I recently saw the journalist Anderson Cooper uh, doing an interview with uh, Stephen Colbert, who uh, hosts uh, one of the, the, the late night shows. Uh, Anderson Cooper had recently lost his, his own mother uh, to death, and uh, that evoked a memory of him losing his dad when his dad was just 10 years old. And another tragic memory when his, his um, older brother, who was just 20 at the time, committed suicide. And so Anderson Cooper, uh, the CNN uh, journalist, was go going through a lot. He reaches out to Stephen Colbert because he knew that Colbert had lost his uh, dad and, and, and two of Stephen's brothers, two of his dad's sons, um, when, when they were relatively young boys. And so Anderson Cooper is interviewing Colbert and um, says, how did, how, did you, how did you make it through that time? And... Uh, Colbert um, said this, uh, I, in the wake of the loss of my dad and, and brothers, it was, it was very painful, um, but I came to ask myself the question, can we love the things we most wish didn't happen? Can we love the things we most wish didn't happen? And, and, and then he uh, heard a quote from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien who said, what if God's seeming punishments are actually gifts? And Colbert said, I, I came to realize that while it was very painful to lose my dad and brothers, I also came to realize just how precious is the gift of life itself. And that as a result of losing them, I had far more empathy and compassion for others who'd lost loved ones. I had more to give to the world. And so 
in a way I'm actually grateful for their passing, even though I, I miss them terribly to this day. And, and uh, Anderson Cooper looked at Colbert and said, are, 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 you, are, you, are you serious? Can, can that really be true? And Colbert said, yes, yes, it can be. And um, as was the case with Carrie Clausen when she discovered the, the, the worst possible story regarding her origins, uh, in time, we may come to see our painful losses as things that God redeems and can use to bless the world. As my former professor, Haddon Robinson, once said, uh, God causes roses to grow out of manure piles. Some of you may remember Catherine um, um, Fenn, who was one of our children's pastors here at Mount Pleasant. Uh, she later uh, became our children's pastor at our then Kitsilano site, which is now um, in, in Caresdale. And uh, I remember Catherine, and she's fine with my sharing this story. She shared it with, with some of us here before. Um, was uh, 18 years old. Uh, she became pregnant uh, as a result of uh, an amorous encounter with her, her then boyfriend. And uh, she realized that she wasn't ready to become a mother herself, nor was her boyfriend ready to become a father. And uh, her mother urged her to end her pregnancy through an abortion. And Catherine said, I decided not to do that, not because I felt abortion was wrong at the time, but because I sensed how painful it would be if I terminated the life of this unborn child. So Catherine decides to have the child, and she ends up giving this boy up for adoption. And across the years, she wonders, how is this boy, how is this teenager, how is this young man doing? 25 years later, uh, she really wanted to know. And so with some fear and trepidation, she did some research. She contacted a social worker, and she discovered that her son had been adopted, and that her son's name was Danny, and that he was a Christian, committed Christian, uh, that he had married a woman named Alicia, and Alicia ended up having cancer, and, and Danny was just there to, to really care for her. Uh, she eventually um, met Danny. They first uh, talked by phone and email, and they eventually met, and Catherine discovered that Danny, like her, was a children's minister. That he was working in England and was uh, helping to mobilize children and uh, young people in the mission of God. Of course, not every story unfolds that way, but sometimes we experience something as Bathsheba must have felt, as Carrie Clausen felt, as... Um, Stephen Colbert felt, as, um, as, as, as we've seen in this story with, with Catherine, that we feel like something has happened and it's the worst possible thing, and yet God can transform that thing into a gift that brings beauty and life and hope, sometimes for generations to come. I also want us to think for a moment about what it means that David is also included in the family tree of Jesus. Um, David was 
was guilty of, of adultery and, and arranging for the death of one of his best soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. And he, he goes into a, a time of sort of hiding and denial. But he's confronted by the prophet Nathan over his sin. And in the scriptures, we're told that David repents. He has a contrite heart. And he realizes what he's done. He confesses his sin and seeks God for forgiveness. And in Psalm 51, we read these words of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then later in Psalm 51, we read David praying, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And um, David is forgiven. He's cleansed. He does experience consequences for his sins as some havoc is wreaked in his own family. But David is truly forgiven. He's truly cleansed. And he is integrated into the family tree of Jesus as one of Jesus's ancestors along with his wife Bathsheba and their son Solomon. And so what we see in this story is a picture of, of redemption, a, a, a picture that God can take the broken pieces of our lives and, and use them to achieve his beautiful purposes. So we see in the family line of Jesus that while pedigree and family line was really important to people in this ancient world, it really isn't that important to God and shouldn't matter to us. It's clear that there are sinners in this family tree and that should give us hope. Hope for our own lives and our own family lines. It doesn't matter if one of your ancestors was an emperor or a prince or someone who did time literally in prison. Uh, God can redeem our, our family lines. It also shows us that our inclusion into the family tree of God isn't on the basis of our moral performance or good works, but solely something that's opened up to us because of the grace and mercy of God, we can all be included. As one commentator observed, after the genealogy of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, there are no more genealogies recorded in the Bible. What matters insofar as God is concerned is not so much your physical genealogy, the family that you've come from, but whether you are woven into the family line of Jesus. In verse 16, we read, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And if you place yourself in Christ, in verse 16, so to speak, receive his forgiveness and mercy and love, and you are adopted into his family because you are in Christ, you are in the only genealogy and family tree that matters. You are in something described in the Bible as the Lamb's book of life. And you are destined for a life with God in this lifetime 
and in a world to come. I close with this. When Jesus' disciples were out and about, um, they discovered that they were able to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And they were understandably elated over that. And they came back and reported this to Jesus. And Jesus said, do not rejoice that the demons obey you, but rejoice instead that your names are written in the book of life, in the book of life itself. Uh, There may be many things that we rejoice in. We might rejoice in our family, our friendships, our education, our work, our health, our financial provision. But the one thing that we can rejoice in above all other things is being included in the family of Jesus Christ. To have our name written in the book of life. That is the treasure above all treasures. And that is the gift to celebrate this Christmas. Let's pray together. If you're not certain that you are in the family tree of Jesus, know that he came for you. He came to receive you into his family. And so in your heart, you can say, Jesus, forgive my sins. That's something that is possible because of his sacrificial death on the cross for you. And you can simply pray, include me in your family tree. Make me one of yours. And if you do that, you can know God's life now, but also in a world to come. He offers it to you no matter what your background as a free gift, his life for you, eternal life that can be enjoyed now and in a world to come. So in your heart, if you'd like, you can turn to him and receive that gift. And so we offer ourselves to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.